0: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave LeFort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we take a look at some of the top stories from September 2020 in Compliance Week, specifically focusing on the SEC, disclosure letter around ESG, the Inside the Mind survey of chief compliance officers, a ransomware series that Allie McDivitt is developing, and a self-directed learning course on cybersecurity for compliance professionals, all on this episode of From the Editor's Desk. Know you will enjoy this podcast from the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where, with my co-host Dave Leefort, we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. Look at compliance stories, cyber stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. So, uh, I'm your co-host, Tom Fox.
1: I'm Dave Lefort, Editor-in-Chief with Compliance Week. Tom, great to be here today and ready to talk some compliance in sports. So, Dave, uh, I wondered if we might start with uh, maybe
0: a look back. What were some of uh, the top stories or issues that Compliance Week uh, followed in the month of September?
1: What I'd like to focus on is the topic of ESG. So, we had a uh, a virtual conference on the intersection of compliance and ESG, and it was – one of our most successful virtual conference in terms of the number of people that attended, the number of questions that were asked, and it's sort of indicative of the climate we're in right now where there is there is an increasing uh, responsibility on uh, ESG-related disclosures, and in particular, environmental-related disclosures. And so to that end, I wanted to uh, just shine a spotlight on the SEC's, uh, their, the letter, the sample letter that they released, uh, last week. Um, essentially what, so the SEC last week, they, they issued a, uh, sort of a a sample letter that it, it was fictional, but it represented the types of questions that they're going to be asking companies, and that uh, you can sort of project that they did ask companies. So because they they sent about um, you know a couple dozen letters to companies asking for clarifications related to disclosures. So if you take a really close look at what the what the SEC is asking, uh, you you can sort of get a view that they're asking for very granular information, and they're asking for information that can be very difficult to project. So if you take a step back, you you have a new chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, who has made it very clear that the the fight against climate change is going to be a priority for his agency. So he has commissioned a task force to to look at writing up a rule proposal the end of the year that would make companies' climate-related risk disclosures consistent, one, and two, useful for investors in their decision-making. So we're – and this is all based on the 2010 SEC guidance regarding disclosure related to climate change. So they're – so Gensler and his team, they're taking – of a a new fresher interpretation of that guidance. So I would advise all companies to take a look at it's 26 pages long it's from 2010 it's it's a it's a new interpretation on that guidance. So rewinding again to last week the SEC uh, made a public statement and sent out a press release and they listed sort of a a sample letter to a fictional company and they listed some of the ways that companies are running afoul of the requirements that are uh, of the requirements for disclosures so essentially what they're asking for is consistency in their disclosures to investors and their disclosures to regulators Okay, so they're asking that one, and two, they're asking for uh, a lot of uh, projections where, so I'm gonna give a couple examples. So, you know, for example, they're, so they pointed out a couple of, a few ways companies are running afoul of the requirements as the SEC now sees them. So they're saying that uh, companies are being more expansive in, corp- in their corporate social responsibility reports than in their SEC filings. That's something that is, you know, that companies are going to need to be buttoned up on. They need to get. They're going to have to have one voice in uh, in what their, uh, I guess, their public statements or their public stance on social responsibility and climate change uh, efforts. So that's that's something that's not that's not a tall ask. So but they're also asking, they're also saying that the companies are not fully disclosing material risks posed by climate change brought on by policy, uh, regulatory changes, market trends, credit risk, technological changes and litigation. So that is an example of like of something that uh, if you look at it from a, a a corporate perspective, you're now asking corporations to start to make projections on some of these things that are that are difficult to do. These are business projections that uh, they're going to be held accountable to. And that's something that is so that's something that that, you know, compliance is going to have to have a a part, be a part of the conversation on. Um, Obviously, Business stakeholders, the C-suite's going to have to be a part of that conversation. Stakeholders from various different departments, the chief financial officer, there are going to have to be, so in other words, companies are going to have to be on one page about this, and they're asking some very difficult questions, and then they take that to another level when, like, they're saying that companies aren't disclosing material or indirect consequences of climate related regulation or market trends that that and this is the interesting part that reduce demand for products that produce greenhouse emission emission uh, that greenhouse gas emissions and increase demand for products that result in lower emissions so so it's one thing to say to the automotive industry you know can you project demand for electric cars five years from now uh, which the automotive industry has been doing for years. It's an entirely another thing to apply that to, let's say, garment productions and try to anticipate demand for uh, for products that are made from sustainably resourced materials or from uh, from labor, from from, I guess, how uh, do I don't want to put this from labor that is that is um, that is legal it's not child labor not made in sweatshops so they're asking organizations from all industries to make these types of projections so where on one hand it's you know car manufacturers been doing this for years it's a very tall order to ask the same question of other industries and i just mentioned the the clothing industries as as one example of um uh, how that can be very difficult for a business to project and now if they're going to be held accountable to these projections for these projections in their disclosures like that's it's a really tall order uh and i guess that's that's the biggest takeaway that i came from this is that the there's a reckoning that's coming um and this is just sort of the first shot across the bow that the sec is going to be asking some very difficult questions and not just difficult for uh for compliance but difficult questions for businesses to answer um so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and what the what the reaction to this is going to be now in part of it and like i said a big a really big part of this is being aligned within your organization of you know which which department is best suited to to head this up to head up uh making these disclosures and reporting on these things is it, is it compliance? Um, you know, we, we asked a, uh, a survey question in our, our ESG event, and I have the results here. So it's, the question was, who leads the sustainability or ESG reporting process in your organization? And 40% said it was a separate sustainability team. 33% said it was the legal or compliance team. 8% said it was their communications team. 12% said it was... Finance, investor relations. So even from just that result alone shows the disparity of where these disclosures are coming from. So that's that's sort of step one is getting your organization on the same page when making these disclosures. Um, So essentially, it's a uh, this is just this this is just the beginning. So once once this rulemaking comes down, which you sort of expected before the end of the year, uh, things are going to get a lot more. Um difficult and a lot more um, complicated when it comes to these making these ESG related disclosures, and in particular, climate risk related disclosures. So,
0: Dave, I think i I could be safe in assuming that this is going to be something that Compliance Week continues to coverage and cover, rather, and we will be talking about this in upcoming episodes as well. Um, now I wanted to turn to sort of a transitional story. Uh, from both September uh, and going into October and perhaps uh, down the road, and uh, that's uh, the series Inside the Mind of the CCO. So uh, what is Inside the Mind? What are you uh, trying to accomplish? Where are you right now? How can CCOs <clears throat> participate, and, and uh, what do you hope uh, the end result of this might be for Compliance Week and, frankly,
1: the greater compliance community? Yeah, so, so every year, this is our third annual survey, and we call it Inside the Mind of the CCO. What we're essentially doing is, try, is helping uh, chief compliance officers and people who aspire to be chief compliance officers, essentially benchmark themselves against their peers. Uh, and we're asking questions to that sort of get at, like what makes uh, someone in compliance tick? What are their motivations? What are their biggest pain points right now? Uh, what are their salaries based on, you know, how many years in the business? How may, what, what industry they're in? Um, whether they like their jobs? So we're asking questions that sort of get at the, uh, the nitty gritty of um, sort of what, what motivates uh, folks that work in compliance. So what I want to do Uh, Just briefly, I'll talk about a couple of the other things that we're trying to get at on this, is that this year, for the first time, we introduced special sections on, we asked them in particular about uh, cybersecurity and ransomware and the impact that that's had on compliance in the past year. We asked them about their company's ESG efforts, and we asked them about their organization's uh, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion efforts as well. So we we're, we're asking the very general questions about what motivates them and then specific questions about what challenges them the most. And so by the end of this process, so we're we, we, we just launched the survey a couple days ago. Um, and by the end of it, we're going to be producing a, uh, you know, 30 page or so report with uh, that highlights some of our our main takeaways on. Motivations, our main takeaways uh, on uh, some of the specific topics. I guess I'll say that that we ask about there, like what are they what are they most worried about uh, in terms of um, cyber risks? What are they most what what concerns them the most about ESG reporting? Where does ESG reporting in their organization sit? So that you can see that by the you know by reading this, they can sort of compare what they're doing at their companies with what other people in similar positions are doing at their organizations. And then one question we ask every year is, uh, you know, do you like your jobs? So this is the one, uh, the one thing that we get consistent answers to each year. And I'm actually just looking at some of the early returns. The survey has been open for three days. We've got 130 respondents. And then, you know, right now we're at, you know, 97% of people who responded to the survey like their jobs. And every year that has been above 90%. So, I mean, it's that's really an indication that people who are in compliance are in it for the right reasons. They're in it because they care about ethics, they care about culture, they care about doing the right things for the right reasons. And, you know, as soon as we start seeing the, this survey result change and the people in compliance are not happy in their in their job that's when we can start to question okay like what's what's happening here this is sort of the canary in the coal mine question if you will um but so that it's so we're still at a point where it's remarkable in what other industry can you say that 97 percent of people uh are happy uh are generally happy in their jobs it's not it's not a huge not a huge uh population that that would be able to say that I
0: was wondering now if we might turn to uh, that veiled land of the future uh, beyond Inside the Mind. And I've read about Allie McDivitt and, and frankly, I think a new exciting investigative series she's going to do around ransomware. But Compliance Week also has developed a really a learning module around cybersecurity, which, of course, includes ransomware. Could you tell us about kind of both of those
1: and and where you might uh, hope that those uh, initiatives go? Yeah, so so first I want to talk about the um, ransomware case study that we're writing right now. So uh, so Allie McDevitt is our uh, our long-form case study writer. She's written a case study on Carnival Cruises' uh, history of environmental compliance issues. She wrote a case study on Volkswagen and, uh, you know, the Dieselgate scandal and their, their two-year compliance monitorship and how they made it through that. Um, and now she has turned her attention to Ransomware I mean we've seen a ton of stories on ransomware over the past year it's It's, it's something that scares uh, every stakeholder in a business, and so we're what we're doing is we're taking a deep dive into all of the stakeholders that get involved when a ransomware attack happens to go into the decision making within a company of, okay, so, you know, so it, so the, this case study is going to start with uh, an employee. So it's a, it's going to be, so it's, we're starting with a, uh, a fictional company, okay? And an employee comes in and turns the computer on and sees that uh, they, they see what they, what they call in the ransomware world, a splash screen, where it indicates, uh, you know, you've been You've been targeted for a ransomware attack. Uh, here, is, here are our demands. So it starts there, and it starts with what does that employee do and how the message gets cascaded within the business, and then how does the business react to that? And, and how does the business react immediately, and how do they make a decision on what to do? Like do they, do they pay the ransom? Do they uh, do they work with the FBI? Uh, what happens? What is their public messaging around this? What were and then what is you know again what is compliance's role in this conversation? What is the chief information security officer's role in this conversation? So she's she's interviewing um, ethical hackers. She's interviewing uh, unethical hackers or hackers, I guess. Uh, She she has interviewed um, an anonymous hacker, uh, a a former FBI assistant director of the cyber division, uh, the CCO of an asset management firm, a what's called a cyber psychologist, which I didn't even know existed until now, uh, the CCO of a cyber insurance carrier, because that's becoming more uh, of a thing that businesses need to uh, invest in is the cyber insurance. Um, a digital forensics examiner and information security specialist. So she's interviewed all of these different folks to get their perspectives on how does a company react when they are hit with a ransomware attack. And the idea at the end of this is to take people through each stage of the process, from discovery of the attack to uh, Communicating about the attack, both internally and externally, the what goes into the decision-making process on how to address the attack. Do you try to uh, do you try to I guess get at it internally and refuse to pay the ransom, or do you pay the ransom in Bitcoin and do you work with the FBI on potentially tracking it from there? Uh, and then what you do in the aftermath uh, of a ransomware attack, both reputationally and getting your systems. Back up in order, and and then also, what can you do proactively? Making sure your policies and procedures are in place for uh, for what happens. Do you have a plan for when uh, a ransomware attack strikes? And what protections do you have? Again, proactively. Um, like for example, one of the things that we discovered is computer logs are incredibly important, and in that. Some versions of Windows don't include um, I guess, the the type of logging activity that's required when you really do a forensic analysis of where this ransomware attack first came from and how to uh, how to troubleshoot it. So so we've we've learned some very interesting things. now this this case study will is being developed now., uh, it's probably a couple months down the road from from publication. Uh, But we do also have a, we launched a new training module uh, yesterday. Um, It's called Cybersecurity Best Practices for the Compliance Practitioner. And it's a self-directed module-based training where you can go at your own pace. And it is essentially a, uh, what compliance practitioners need to know about uh, cybersecurity best practices. So it's, again, the importance of Uh, of device management, um, best practices for policies, who owns cybersecurity within the organization, what compliance's role is in all of that. Um, It also looks at uh, recent legislation and what it requires of compliance and uh, how it relates to cybersecurity. So we look at the CCPA, we look at the New York uh, Shield Shield Act, for example, uh, we also look at the uh, universal industry standards for uh, for cybersecurity protections, uh, and then there are. It's it's an interactive module, so um, I took it myself. It's not uh, it's not dry for sure. There are case studies sprinkled throughout. There are knowledge checks throughout. It's uh, it offers two CPE credits. Uh, there are periodic quizzes and you need to pass. You need to get a passing grade, if you will. So 75% of the questions you need to answer correctly. And these are not easy questions, by the way. I, I, um, I did pass it, I'll say that, but I did not get 100%, I got far from it. Um, I, I personally learned a lot, um, and it is well worth, worth any practitioner's time. And I promise that they will, everyone who takes it, will learn something that they didn't know previously. That sounds great, Dave. Uh,
0: And I'm certainly looking forward uh, to that as well, as well as Allie's report and your Inside the Mind uh, series. I think those are all going to be some great uh, benchmarks for the entire compliance community. Um, But now we get to get to the fun part and uh, that's talking some sports. So uh, coincidentally, last night on ESPN was the 20th anniversary show of PTI. So uh, you know maybe there's a uh, another forum for us in our future, Dave. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, we've had uh, the first three games of the NFL season. We're moving towards uh, some baseball playoffs. Maybe I can start with the NFL. Uh, what's maybe uh, caught your attention uh, in this first quarter of the season, or maybe caught your eye?
1: So a few things. Um, I think they. Uh, I think the Rams look great. I you know you can sort of see. Uh, quarterback Matt Stafford, who was traded from the Detroit to LA in the offseason. I mean, how good he actually is. Like he was, he was pretty good with the Lions, but the Lions were a historically bad team, really. Um, he and he's thriving with the Rams. The Rams look like a juggernaut right now. The other team that's playing great, uh, the Arizona Cardinals. Their offense, uh, with under Kyler Murray, is uh, is incredible right now, and their defense is great too. So those are two three-and-O you know, teams. And then the other one, obviously, is the are the uh, defending Super Bowl champion Bucks. Uh, you know, any team led by Tom Brady is, you know, he's he's 44 years old. He's still he's still getting it done. He's in New England this week, and not uh, I, don't, I guess perhaps not coincidentally, he's he's also going to uh, he's going to break the NFL all-time passing record with about 70 yards passing, which. Could probably get within the first 10 minutes or five minutes of the of the first quarter. So uh, the 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 Bucks are also uh, the Bucks are still legit. Brady is still legit. He's still the same guy. I don't know when he's not going to be the same guy. I mean, he's 44 years old. But been doing this for 21 years now. Uh, I think maybe 20 22nd season. Maybe I, I'm, it's hard to it's hard to keep track. Um, as a Patriots fan, I'm I'm still a little bitter. Uh, I have to be honest that he left us. Uh, we left New England two years ago. Uh, we could still be enjoying the the golden years, <laughs> I guess, of Tom Brady. Instead, we're instead the Patriots are the Patriots fan base. I'll say we're now we're now sort of uh, it's been a real reality check these last two seasons. Cam Newton last year was a disaster. This year, you know, we all got excited about. Uh, Mac Jones, the rookie quarterback, played really well weeks one and two, really came back to earth <laughs> in week three. So there, there'll be, with any rookie quarterback, there'll be ups and downs. Uh, but I have to be honest, we're not used to that here in New England, these these ups and downs and so much uncertainty. Um, but so, yeah, those are those are really my my takeaways from the first few weeks. How about you? So uh, the first thing
0: is that I was reminded, no matter how great you were in college, how many wins you've had as a quarterback over your career, uh, none of that matters when you get to the pros. And 2021 was one of the top or reputed to be the top draft years for quarterbacks, maybe even since 1983 in the Dan Marino class. Uh, and all of those guys are struggling. Um, uh, so, um, uh, it, I mean, it, it is not only the premier position in the premier sport in America, but it's the toughest position. And yeah. uh, we've had some great rookie quarterbacks uh, struggle uh, this first, uh, first month. Uh, and I think everybody forgot that. Um, so the second thing is uh, I'm reminded how much coaching matters. And we tend to think that, well, we just put the best team on the field and and they're going to win. But as you mentioned, the L.A. Rams, uh, I was going to say St. Louis Cardinals, but that would show my age. The Arizona Cardinals, uh, uh, both of those coaches are offensive minded, very good coaches. Uh, We've talked about Belichick before and and he he and his staff have done a great job. But we've also seen some really bad coaching failures. the uh, the latest one was, in my mind, in Detroit, where they're right on the verge of winning. They score, and they kick the ball off into the end zone, so no time runs out. And, of course, Aaron Rodgers goes 50 yards in two plays, and then they kick a field goal to win. But um, they could have uh, squib kicked that and run 5, 10, maybe 15 seconds off. Same thing with uh, Kansas City and Baltimore. Um, so just kind of the, the coaching errors that i've seen uh this year uh, Houston uh made made one uh, it's a rookie coach so maybe uh he gets a pass on that but I've, i was reminded how important good and great coaching is um and then uh really the other thing is just that uh it's so good to have football back with fans and yeah. as much as i enjoyed last year it really is another dimension just to hear the crowds on television. And you can feel the players feeding off that enthusiasm. Um, the the places, uh, the one uh, thing that hasn't really come back yet is the places that were traditionally viewed as very difficult to play at Seattle, Kansas city, uh, other places uh, where not only the noise level, but the fan enthusiasm was so great. Uh, the The road teams have done, uh, as well this year as they did last year so i'm a, i'm a little surprised at that but uh, I can still feel the uh, the enthusiasm when I watch the um the game so it's it's so nice to to really feel that even on television uh we got a little time left dave um, how are you feeling about your Red sox
1: yeah so I don't feel great i mean it's it's been Really, the last month has been a real roller coaster. I mean, we, they uh, prior to this week, they'd reeled off, I think it was seven or eight straight wins. And they were all of a sudden looking great again. Everything was coming together. They, the, the, I guess the, the message here in Boston was, oh, this Red Sox team, they're just like 2013. They're getting hot at the right time. They're going to roll into the playoffs. They're going to actually make some noise in the playoffs. And all of a sudden, the Yankees come to town. Sweep the Red Sox, uh, and then the Red Sox travel to Baltimore, probably the worst team in baseball, and they lost to Baltimore. So now they've lost four in a row and are now second in the wild card race. And you know, they'll—I'm guessing because the Yankees right now—they're red hot. They're playing uh, Toronto, who's right behind the Red Sox in the wild card race. So. Um, I imagine that the Red Sox will eke into that second wildcard spot. They're going to end up playing the Yankees one game in the Bronx. Uh, and I'm betting they'll lose. Um, so it's and even if they do manage to win that game, I uh, I don't know. I've, I've become a little bit jaded on this on this particular Red Sox team. It's been it's been an up and down ride. They started the season hot. They went ice cold for a very long time. Uh, then just this past two weeks, they reeled me back in a little bit, and now they're just letting me down again. So it's it's been a uh, just just within this season, it's been a, a bit of a bumpy ride. And I'm I don't know. I guess you know it would be unfair to uh, to sort of abandon them entirely, but I have to say I'm not I'm not optimistic about their overall chances. Um, I, I do, however. I'm very interested in what's happening in the National League, where the Dodgers, the 280 million dollar team, they're going to be a wild card team. They're going to have to play the St. Louis Cardinals, who won—I don't even know how many games in a row now. It's—it's it's a bunch, like maybe f- 15, is it? I don't even know. What I mean, it's a bunch of games in a row.
0: 16 last night. Uh, yeah, the uh, the NL—it's uh, a great division race between the Giants and Dodgers. And yeah. frankly, I love that rivalry. I've always loved it uh, way back when it was Sandy Koufax and Willie Mays. And uh, I am sorry that that one of those teams is going to go to the to the wild card. But, you know, that's the the playoff system we have now. We're going to have two teams in one division with over 100 wins, the Dodgers and the Giants. And uh, if the Dodgers run into that buzzsaw that currently is the St. Louis Cardinals, Uh, they could get pitched after one game, but I'll also say uh, in somewhat defensive your Red Sox, anything can happen in one game and from a perfect game to a disaster. But uh, the one game playoff is just an incredible format. So the Astros were uh, kicking ass and taking names against the bottom five teams in the AL. Uh, We're down to a week ago. They were down to two games, magic number. And then the, uh, they got swept by the A's in four games. Uh, and then uh, now we're playing the, uh, the Tampa Bay uh, team. And I didn't, was worried about that, but we won last night. So our magic numbers won and we're going to get in there. And uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, playoff uh, with the Dodgers and Giants. You know, it's the best team in baseball going to get knocked out before they even get to the World Series. And
1: frankly, wow. Dave, that's what I love about baseball. Yeah, I do, too. I love the one game wild card, especially when uh, one of the teams is, you know, potentially the second best team in all baseball and could get eliminated in one game. And even, you know, if you look at the potential matchups, you could get, you know, like you said, the Dodgers against the hottest team in baseball in the NL. And then the AL, you have the Yankees and the Red Sox, potentially, you know, two of the biggest, uh, biggest rivals. Um, playing a one-game playoff just to get into the playoffs. So I think I think the one-game playoff, while probably not fair to any one individual team, it's definitely exciting as a fan. Um, and I and I'll I'll definitely be watching uh, all of those wildcard games. Now beyond that, who knows? It probably depends on who wins whether I'll I'll be tuning in or not. But uh, but yeah, I love the one-game playoff too. Well, Dave, unfortunately, we're
0: near the end of our time uh, for this episode, but I am Tom Fox, uh, co-host
1: from the Editor's Desk. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I'm Dave Leaport, Editor-in-Chief of Compliance Week, and uh, excited to talk to you again next month.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Dave and I on the last Friday of each month where we get together to take a retrospective look back of what's appeared in Compliance Week and what may be coming for the next month. Are you interested in using social engineering to improve your compliance program and employee engagement? Then check out my new podcast series with Karsten Tams, Design Thinking and
1: Compliance, premiering in October. you are interested in how ESG
0: intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.